Welcome to RoyalOaks.com. I'm Royal Oaks. Everybody's heard the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, that maxim doesn't really apply to our legal system. It's broken, and we've got to fix it. America's legal system is a disaster. The guilty go free. Clueless jurors make life and death decisions. Frivolous suits clog the system without any real consequence. Lawyers care only about winning, not the truth. Politicians, well, they're either dishonest, setting up a system that's based on giving voters something for nothing, or they're cowardly, refusing to fight meritless lawsuits. These truths have been put on display in bold relief over the last 20 years of televised American justice. From O.J. Simpson to Robert Blake going free to hot coffee spill victims walking away with millions, the lessons are right there staring us in the face. Now all we need are voters and legislators and judges with the courage to fix a broken system. Okay, problem number one, high-profile train wrecks of justice. Return with us now to the highest of high-profile cases at the finish line inside the O.J. Simpson jury room. This month, Fox is putting on a big movie dramatizing the Simpson murder trial, so lots of folks will have their memories refreshed or maybe hear for the first time the details about our mid-'90s national obsession. The O.J. jury had been listening for nine months to mind-numbing testimony. They start their deliberations. They spend about 20 minutes ordering lunch, about 15 minutes picking a four-person, another 10 minutes or so shooting the breeze. Then they spend about a half hour talking about the case. And in less than a minute, they vote for a famous defendant who had the motive and the means and the opportunity to kill. His blood drenched the crime scene. He had an inexplicable cut on his hand from which a lot of blood flowed. And he was later determined by a civil jury to be a double murderer. And who, as his cryptic confessional called, If I Did It, later essentially admitted, got away with double murder. So these jurors are exhibit A for society's need to fix a broken system. But they're just the tip of the iceberg. The failures of the system fall into very familiar categories. There is the problem of the guilty going free, from O.J. Simpson to Robert Blake to Michael Jackson. If you're famous, the man in the street loves you and is not going to convict you. If you're rich, you can afford lawyers who can roll over the opposition. Second problem, frivolous suits. The frivolous suit problem is huge in America. They just run amok, and they're driven by four assumptions of the legal apocalypse. First, every injury has to have a remedy. Every remedy can be enormous. Every potential remedy has settlement value. And meritless suits should, of course, be rewarded with settlements because, you know, businesses can simply pass on the cost to consumers, or maybe they've got insurance coverage to take care of the settlement. Beyond the hot coffee case, there's the burglar who crashed through the skylight. And, of course, he sued because the skylight was too weak. And there are countless other examples. College student decides to moon somebody from the fourth-story dorm room window. He loses his balance, falls out of the window, injuring himself. So, naturally, he sues the college for not warning him of the dangers of living on the fourth floor. A woman sued after the San Francisco cable car she was riding in rear-ended an automobile. She claimed she sustained permanent injuries that turned her into a nymphomaniac. She was awarded eighty-five grand. A woman sued the company that makes the clapper, claiming she hurt her hands because she had to clap too hard to turn on her appliances. 
Oh, you'll love this one. A, a woman who spread contraceptive jelly on toast and then ate it sued the product's manufacturer and the store that sold the contraceptive jelly because, of course, she got pregnant. An inebriated fellow became extremely agitated over the fact his soda machine ate his quarters but wouldn't give up the soda, so he punched the machine, rocked it back and forth until it fell on him and killed him. His estate sued the soda company for wrongful death. There was a Texas inmate who sued Penthouse Magazine for half a million dollars, saying its pictorial of Paula Jones was insufficiently revealing, causing him to be mentally hurt and angry. There was a Michigan woman who filed a $1 million lawsuit against the estate of her dead ex-husband, saying she still feared him, despite his current condition. A New York prison inmate sued the jail for failing to catch him smuggling in a gun that he later used to accidentally shoot himself. Oh, here's a suit you paid for. A 16-year-old indigent Pennsylvania boy sued for custody of the child that he fathered by rape. How is it you paid for it? Well, the federal government funds the legal aid clinic that drafted the paperwork for the boy. So some of these cases, of course, have led to parody. Recently, the satirical newspaper The Onion ran a story titled, Hershey's Order to Pay Obese Americans $100 Billion. The story said that the Hershey's Chocolate Company paid $100 billion to settle a class action suit by folks who claimed there was no warning on the candy bars. They wanted it to say, quote, the Surgeon General has determined that eating chocolate may lead to being really fat. But now life has imitated art. Several years ago, a Mr. Caesar Barber of the Bronx filed a suit against McDonald's. He claimed he developed obesity and heart problems from wandering into McDonald's over the years. We see suits filed regularly against fast food chains based on the idea that there were no warnings that junk food is addictive or unhealthy. Legislators around the country have gotten in line. Do you know packages of peanuts today have to bear the words, Warning, contains peanuts. Did you know that the cardboard screen you put in your car to keep the temperature down on hot days has to have a warning, Do not drive while sunshield is in place. Did you know a fireplace log company has to put the following warning on the package? Caution, risk of fire. Then there's the warning on the folding baby carriage. Warning, do not fold while baby is in carriage. Then there was the personal injury sting conducted in Boston. Police trained a camera on a city bus. It was totally empty, and the bus was parked at the curb next to a bus stop where a couple of dozen folks were milling around. Then a staged collision happened. The cops arranged for a car to rear-end the bus. What happened next? Seven citizens who had been milling around on the sidewalk clambered aboard the bus, took a seat, and waited. When the police arrived a few minutes later, they duly reported their serious whiplash injuries. Three people standing on the sidewalk even claimed to police that they were on the death bus when the crash occurred, but couldn't stand the idea of staying there another second, so they got out and waited for help on the sidewalk. Lawyers have figured out that if they can transform their beef into a class action, that's where the big money is. Take tobacco. Already we've seen about $300 billion in settlements in the tobacco area. A Florida class action on behalf of half a million sick smokers resulted in a $144 billion verdict. And inspired by the tobacco settlements, there have been dozens of class actions filed against HMOs. 
My favorite one was the one filed in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, on behalf of 10% of the nation's population, some 34 million HMO members, against five of the country's biggest HMOs. Most of these class actions, of course, ignore the core concept of commonality required by any class suit. You only certify the class if the case is based on common facts, if proof of the sample proves liability by the company that was sued to all members of the class. If common issues predominate over individualized issues, then yes, you green light the class action suit. But these HMO suits violated this requirement big time. There are a huge variety of HMO plan provisions. There are infinite interactions between patients and the HMO doctors and their managers. But these high-profile suits want to replace this notion of commonality with two key questions. First, does the public really, really hate the industry we're suing? And second, if we can somehow get the case certified, will simple multiplication make the fees enormous, the, the number of class members times the average damages per class member. The HMO suits inspired pork pollution suits. Environmentalists sued a single pork producer for pollution, seeking damages in the sum of $148 billion. By the way, that figure is 100 times the assets of the company. The explanation by the plaintiff's lawyers, well, this is a way to bring the entire industry to the bargaining table. Then there are the gun lawsuits. Dozens of suits around the country are pending against gun manufacturers Smith & Wesson and other gun makers, claiming that guns are marketed in a way that makes it predictable that they'll fall into the hands of criminals. The California Supreme Court rejected the theory, but the suits around the country are alive and well. And the list goes on. Remember the Budweiser talking frog? It was claimed in litigation that toads shouldn't be used to hook teens on beer. Of course, the true motivation for these class actions and these massive tort cases is to replace the market system as an engine of reform. Our economy is designed to reward quality and innovation and cost-cutting, and the government stands ready to step in where unlawful practices happen. The people who aren't happy with the job the market system and the government have been doing they're looking for another way to change what the market has wrought, and they found the courthouse is a very powerful vehicle. And then there's the fact that criminals are unleashed on a helpless society as a result of our legal system. We spend ourselves into oblivion on worthless projects and giveaways to the point where we can't really afford to build and operate sufficient jail space. So we vote for an initiative that is going to release the least violent of our criminals a little early. But we build into the formula the fact that we only look at their most recent conviction – thus conveniently ignoring the fact that many of the people we're releasing have numerous very violent offenses in their past. The result, kind of predictable. After years of decline, the crime rates are spiking. We're creating crime victims because we can't curb our spending habits. It may not be politically correct to criticize folks doing their civic duty, but the fact is, after countless high-profile cases, we've learned a sad truth that jurors traffic in personal emotions, irrelevancies, evasiveness. We have this notion that a cross-section of the population should be entrusted with life-and-death decisions. But by doing so, we're guaranteed a regular stream of incompetent decisions. In what other field do we entrust important jobs 
to unqualified people. When we want to design a safe car, we don't summon randomly chosen registered voters to do it. When we want a brain tumor removed, we don't pick from the DMV rolls and hand them a scalpel. Why do we play this egalitarian game when it comes to civil and criminal justice? Endless quotes from interviews of jurors commenting on their work on high-profile cases are really discouraging. Juror X, what do you think of the smoking gun evidence offered by the prosecution? Oh, we really bonded as jurors. Yes, but what was pivotal to your vote to acquit? Uh, We exchanged pictures of our grandchildren. We're going to stay in touch forever. Problem number three, dishonest politicians. Legislators want to give something for nothing, so they give the right to sue. Legislators want to keep their jobs. That happens when voters reelect them because the lawmakers give them free stuff. And part of the free stuff they give away is a legal system that imposes no consequences on filing frivolous suits. It creates rights to sue where none should exist. In our system, contingency fees are permitted. Losers don't have to pay winners' fees. And unhappy alleged victims are allowed to sue for punitive damages, even though the damages have nothing to do with the actual damage that people suffered. Just to, you know, teach the companies a lesson, make sure it doesn't happen again. Local lawmakers cave in and they pay millions to undeserving plaintiffs. There was the dog food case in Los Angeles where the city council voted to give a firefighter millions who said he was embarrassed when his co-workers put dog food in his stew. Why doesn't the city council grow a set and say, guess what, you don't get a dime? How lucky do you feel, pal? We may not have enough money to fix potholes, but by God, we're going to tell our staff lawyers to fight their hearts out and send a message to you and everybody else that we don't pay frivolous claims, no matter what it costs to defend them. If we run out of money, we can raise taxes a little bit, but we're not going to roll over and pay extortion settlements. Politicians now are even talking about stealing your money taxes to give to civil litigants so they can hire lawyers to file suits. Right now, if you think you've been injured, there are millions of underemployed lawyers falling all over themselves, happy to take your case for nothing, absolutely nothing, on the hope that you'll get something from a frightened defendant who did nothing wrong, but who knows it'll cost him 20 grand or 60 grand, maybe 100 grand or more to defend himself. So he'll reach into his pocket, or his insurance company will reach into their pocket and settle the case, leading to everybody else paying higher premiums, and you, the plaintiff, will get paid off. So if you can't find a lawyer today to take your case on a contingency, well, your case must really suck. But not to worry. The politicians want to guarantee you a free lawyer at taxpayer expense to file your lawsuit that, unbelievably, no lawyer would take on a contingency. Just like the criminal system, if you can't afford a defense lawyer, you get one. They want to say, as to the civil system, if you can't afford a plaintiff's lawyer, we'll give you one at taxpayer expense. Problem number four, greedy, dishonest lawyers. Greed is good, you say? It's what drives our capitalist engine? Fair enough, but what about the honesty part? The sellers of goods and services and their advertisers may employ puffery, but they're still forced to come to grips with the truth. If they don't put out a product that's high quality at a reasonable price, the market system is going to squash them like a bug. They may try to gussy up the truth and put lipstick on a pig occasionally, but the bottom line is the consumer has to be happy with what they're offering or they're going to go broke.
But what about the lawyer? The truth means nothing to him. He's handed the file and told which side he represents. In his job, half the time, he has to defeat the truth. In virtually every dispute, if you look hard enough, you see one side is basically right, basically telling the truth, and the other side is lying. So half the time, the file plopped on the lawyer's desk is the paperwork submitted by the liar in the drama. But that's okay, because the lawyer's job is just to make his guys sound more reasonable. Now, is it honest to file a suit knowing it has virtually no merit, but you advise your client to file it because you knew the defendant would rather pay 20 or 30 grand to get rid of the suit than to pay 50 or 100 grand to fight it, only to have an incompetent jury vote against him in spite of the fact he's right? So, bottom line is the system is insidious, with so many guilty elements contributing to its failure. The lawmaker encourages the frivolous suit by creating suit-friendly rules. The judge refuses to put his foot down and throw it out. The insurance company or the city throws money at the plaintiff just to get rid of the problem. And the jury stands ready to issue a moronic decision dictated by the fact that some big company ripped off their uncle back in 1987 or maybe because they bonded with some other jurors. Jurors often have an agenda. According to a University of Georgia law professor, Ronald Carlson, he said people are frustrated by the inaction of the other branches of government. They realize that as jurors, they hold incredible powers of change, and they're ready and willing to wield those powers. There was a 16-month study by the Dallas Morning News and the Southern Methodist University Law Review. They identified over 700 cases in the last decade. 700 where jurors stated publicly they intended their verdicts to have an impact beyond their individual cases. And they studied the 20 years before that decade. The study founded fewer than 100 such cases. And in the 70 years before that, researchers identified only 17 cases where jurors indicated they wanted their verdicts to have some kind of broader influence. I think we're picking up a trend. Before we elect politicians and let them make public policy decisions, we put them through a rigorous campaign procedure. They're constantly under the microscope. Government regulators, while appointed, are usually people with decades of experience in the industry they regulate. But members of a civil jury... Listen to the words of International Papers General Counsel William Lytton. Do silicone implants cause disease? Do electric power lines emit radiation and cause cancer? Jurors are the least informed, the least represented, and the least qualified body to determine public policy. For 12 people to put giant companies out of business, what next? Will 12 people decide fatty foods are inappropriate and put McDonald's out of business? The idea of jury nullification also raises serious questions about the wisdom of putting power in the hands of jurors. Jury nullification is where the jurors just ignore the law if they don't like it. The problem's always been with us, but recently it appears to be a growing phenomenon. A survey of almost 600 federal judges in the United States found 35% said they had presided over a clear case of jury nullification. And then there's a question. Do we really need regulation by litigation? Well, I can speak about an industry I represent, and I know that more than other companies and industries, and that's the insurance industry. Take a look at the situation in California. California Department of Insurance enforces a comprehensive set of regulations about unfair claims practices. 
and the legislature consistently increases the budget for enforcement of these important rules. These claims are given priority by the Department of Insurance over all other consumer complaints. Insurance companies required to provide the full claim file to the Department of Insurance, and claims on the average are resolved within 42 days at no charge to the claimant. In a recent three-year period, Department of Insurance penalties imposed in unfair claims practice cases totaled $3.5 million. The fact is, insurance companies systematically live up to their contractual obligations. Some years ago, there was a survey that found that there were about 38 complaints against insurance companies for every 100,000 auto insurance policies. Only 12% of the complaints were found to be justified. And for the biggest 50 auto insurers, with some 16 million policies, only 894 complaints were found to be justified. Okay, problem number five, an apathetic and ignorant public. One reason the power players in the legal system are allowed to manipulate and shape it in their interest is that the public really doesn't want to expend the energy to get involved and insist on reform. An advantage of the high-profile trial syndrome is that it does shine a light not only on juicy celebrity shenanigans, but it also results in teachable moments for the public. People learn about the absurdities of the hot coffee decision. They, they learned our legal system provides for two trials against the bad guys. O.J.'s murder trial followed up by his civil trial, resulting in that $33 million verdict. Cameras in the courtroom can demystify what goes on in the legal system and let the public vote up or down on the performance of judges and lawyers and litigants. All right, we've complained enough. Let's get to the solutions. First, what about bad jurors? How about this? Let's give them lie detector tests to ferret out the liars. All right, it's not 100% reliable. So what? We're not putting them in prison because the test says they're lying. We're just keeping them out of the jury box. Let's establish minimum standards for competency, maybe intelligence tests. Yeah, a lot of people would be shocked and offended by what they would perceive as elitism. But remember, you don't mind having the best and the brightest transplant your heart. Why shouldn't the same idea apply when picking who decides if somebody gets executed or set free or tossed into bankruptcy? Where complex issues are involved, let's use those with expertise have independent experts available as consultants to the jurors. Solution two for bad legislators, pretty simple, throw the bums out. Solution three for bad lawyers, here not so simple. The drive to win and make more money is always going to incentivize lawyers to fight for victory at the expense of the truth, to pursue a prolonged enriching litigation experience at the expense of an expedited resolution. Number four, Let's keep shining the light on the court system with cameras. Judges ought to permit camera coverage every chance they get. And if a Johnny Cochran or a Marsha Clark act up and play to the camera, don't turn off the red light. Hold them in contempt and keep the cameras rolling. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Full disclosure here, I represent the Radio and Television News Association. I am in court arguing for cameras a lot. And sometimes people say, well, you know, we're worried people will be intimidated. The fact is, people almost immediately forget that there is a camera. It's unobtrusive, it's silent, it's in the back of the courtroom, and it lets the entire society see the system at work. Solution number five, keep the ballot proposition system alive. The initiative system actually gives voters the chance to put ballot initiatives before them 
and change the law for the better is under attack. You probably remember the Proposition 8 battle in California. Prop 8 got on the ballot. It said marriage is between a man and a woman. The proposition passed narrowly and immediately was challenged in federal court. The challenges uh, said, you know, uh, it's unconstitutional. And Ted Olson and David Boyes won fair and square. They, they clobbered the proposition. It was declared unconstitutional. And supporters of Prop 8 should have been allowed to continue the fight up the appellate ladder to the Ninth Circuit and the Supreme Court, but they weren't. Why? Well, because technically the losing defendants in the trial court case against Prop 8 were the Governor Schwarzenegger and the Attorney General then, Jerry Brown. And when the losers lost, they announced, that's okay, we never really liked Prop 8 in the first place, so they didn't support an appeal. Well, the court system agreed with them, finding that the supporters of Prop 8 had no standing to appeal. Somehow it was okay for them to have standing to fight the good fight and get crushed by the legal juggernaut of David Boys and Ted Olson, but when it came to appealing the loss in the Ninth Circuit, no, there was no standing, case closed. The result of this? Well, result was the evisceration of the initiative process in California. If the public's will can be thwarted simply because the guy who happens to be governor at the moment disagrees with the proposition that the voters passed, then you're gutting the power of the initiative. And in California, where you have a, a politically monochromatic landscape, every constitutional officer from governor to lieutenant governor, insurance commissioner, controller, they're all Democrats. And both sides of the legislature, the Assembly and the Senate, ha have a majority, if not occasionally a supermajority, two-thirds plus, of Democrats. When you add this up, you really don't have a two-party system. And now, since the rules have changed in California so that you no longer have the top two vote-getters, Republican and Democrat, square off in the general election in November, instead you have the two top vote-getters square off period and often you have two Democrats to pick from, the deck is stacked. California has basically broken away from a two-party nation, and the only vestige of power for people who disagree with the Democrat majority, the initiative process is being tossed in the ash can. Other people say, well, what do the trial lawyers propose when it comes to changing the system? Well, they have a bad solution. Uh, they push the idea of class warfare. In fact, this jury nullification we've talked about, arguing that greedy corporations should be held to account for their many sins, even if the law and the facts in a particular case doesn't really necessarily support that conclusion. Not exactly a good idea. I mean, if you don't like the law, if it violates your sense of fairness and the way life ought to be, then just break the law. And why should this concept be limited to jury situations? I mean, if you're out in the community, you know, feel free to abandon or break the law. You like your neighbor's Maserati, just take it. Show your contempt for that annoying law about personal property belonging to others. Just nullify it to your personal advantage. That's not really the way it should be. We pay our congressmen lots of hard-earned money to make laws, hold hearings, and do research, and listen to testimony, and then pass the laws. Jurors really shouldn't be encouraged to take the law and toss it in the dumpster. In the view of the trial lawyers, the people, not companies, count. So they say, let's unleash the power of the jury system to punish corporations and compensate victimized people. But this kind of polarizing rhetoric really divides the country into two camps, the rich, the evil corporate masters who care nothing about safety or are obsessed with profit, and the poor, the downtrodden victims, who juries can help by teaching the companies a lesson and 
making the victims and their contingency lawyers very rich. But there is a better idea. Let's stop polarizing society with stereotypes that are built on the foundations of class warfare and greed. Let's recognize that most people are honest and hardworking, and companies are made up of people. Let's stop looking at legal disputes through this prism of bias and try to figure out who's really telling the truth, who's exaggerating, who's really been hurt, and who hasn't. But where an objective evaluation of a jury verdict leads a judge or an appeals court to conclude a verdict was the result of passion or prejudice, it ought to be tossed out or reduced. And if our system is too timid about cracking down on frivolous suits or excessive verdicts, if more penalties should be imposed on such suits to discourage them, then we ought to take those steps. Let's not hesitate to do it because we've been trained to hate the rich or hate corporations. The genius of the American political system is that we sense when the pendulum has swung too far. The trust busters cropped up as the 20th century dawned and Rockefellers and the Morgans had abused their power. And when Americans sense that the judicial system is being used to extort settlements and destroy businesses and indeed entire industries, driving prices up, that's when our American uncommon common sense kicks in and moves the pendulum back to the center. We're probably never going to be able to do much to instill some lawyers with values, but if we can change the system and the laws and the lawmakers and the judges, maybe the mischief that some lawyers can accomplish will be minimized. Long term, we might think about that old saying, that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And instead of an educational system devoted to boosting self-esteem at the expense of teaching kids that they're timeless values, we might bite the bullet admit to ourselves that the principles taught by Socrates and Confucius, Jesus and Buddha, justice, equality, courage, moderation, beauty, these aren't archaic things. These aren't controversial. Instead, they're the bedrock of our existence as a civilization. They're essential to our survival. If we spent more time getting this message across to kids, maybe we'd have a shot at revamping our joke of a legal system. We're up to number 39 on our top 50 songs of all time. If you love the movie The Big Chill, you probably love this song, too. Plenty of artists recorded it from Creedence Clearwater Revival to Gladys Knight and the Pips, but it was Marvin Gaye's version that put him and the song on the map in 1968. Here's I Heard It Through the Grapevine. you sure. 